You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on February 12, 2021. Let's have a listen. Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to another episode of uh, Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. And I see that there are a bunch of questions uh, left over from last time. Oh boy, here's a weird one. If you couldn't be a human, what animal would you want to be and why? What non-human, non-alien species is capable of doing smart, impactful things? Oh, that's an interesting question. So, I mean, uh, the one question is, what do animals, what are animals actually, other than humans, actually capable of? Do we know? Uh, you know, is there a great civilization that has been built by whales, but we just don't know it? One of the questions that uh, is always a challenging one is, we have a certain way of thinking about things. Uh, we know what we humans do, but the question is, can we, if, if we are trying to identify uh, the sort of the, 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 the meaning and, and structure of something built by non-humans, what can we identify? You know, even for us humans, it's pretty challenging. If you go back and look at uh, archeological remains, you say, you know, you look at Stonehenge, bunch of, you know, the circle of stones that's, uh, that's in England, or you look at uh, cave paintings um, from, I don't know, 40,000 years ago or something, and you say, what, or even much longer ago than that, uh, what are these things? What were they supposed to represent? Are they something significant that's indicative of some sophisticated uh, thinking and civilization and so on? Or are they just, let's say it's a cave painting, are they just sort of places where people randomly stuck their hands on the side of the cave after, after they coated them in some kind of paint-like substance? It's tough to know. Unless we have kind of a, a direct sort of historical thread that traces us back to whatever it is that we see in these archeological remains, it's, it's very hard for us to know how does this relate to something that we think of as important and civilization related today. And so, you know, that poses a big problem when it comes to interpreting uh, things for other critters. Um, it's like uh, when we see the ants building this very elaborate, uh, you know, anthill or something, uh, to what extent is that a, a thing that is like uh, us, you know, building a cathedral or whatever, and to what extent is it something quite different and much simpler? Very hard to know. Um, I think that uh, uh, we humans, uh, we have one very important characteristic, which doesn't seem to be shared, at least not too much, by other kinds of critters, which is this ability to communicate abstract ideas using language, to be able to, to take kind of the things we're thinking about and represent them abstractly, and then be able to communicate them to, to other humans. And that seems to be the, the, the sort of critical capability that's allowed us over the course of, of you know, hundreds, thousands of generations to build up sort of all the, the sophistication that we, that we have now. And that doesn't kind of probably seem to happen in other animals. It's really hard to know. Let's take whales as an example. You know, it's been known for a long time that, that whales uh, have these whale songs that they, 
communicate uh, uh, through sound in the water. And um, uh, one feature of, um, of sound transmission in water is that in the deep ocean that's very, very still, uh, sound can get transmitted a long way, thousands of miles. So a whale that's sort of on one side of the Pacific can be having its conversation with a whale on the other side of the Pacific. Uh, and um, you, know, you, can, you can get some evidence, I think, of sort of communication that happens over uh, in large populations over, over long distances like that. What does this communication mean? We have no idea. Uh, is it something that uh, seems a bit more like uh, the whale just sort of whistling to itself or, or like some kind of uh, chirping bird that's just like, oh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm happy today, I'm going to chirp and doesn't really mean anything in our usual sense of meaning? Or is it something that is representing the, you know, the Homeric poems of the whales being communicated uh, you know, in an oral tradition, one whale to the next? We don't really know. So, so if you ask um, uh, what, um, in, in what species is it possible, can one imagine sort of building up something that might be important sort of for the, for the history of the species or the history of, uh, uh, of, of, of life in general? We don't really know. One of the things that's sort of a, a, um, an issue for, for other species is that, uh, you know, we humans have, have got this whole sort of ability, you know, we've got our hands, we make things and we've made machines that make more things and so on. And we can have a built environment that is, seems pretty sophisticated. Of course, there are plenty of other uh, creatures that make built environments from termites to beavers to whatever else. They just don't seem to us kind of maybe as sophisticated as ours. But, you know, it's really hard to tell sometimes. There's this little fish, what is it, a little puffer fish thing. I think it's, it's found in, uh, off Japan that goes and it spends, you know, a couple of weeks and it makes this incredibly elaborate mandala-like pattern in the sand, which it then proceeds to destroy. I think it's some kind of mating display type thing. But, you know, you look at this thing and it, it looks kind of like an elaborate piece of human artwork kind of construction. Is it significant or is it just the sort of the, the reflex actions of the little puffer fish with its little circuit of, you know, uh, a thousand neurons that is producing this particular pattern? It's not really clear. I mean, if you ask, if you take that logic and you just say, well, if you could identify it, as being something produced by some collection of neurons, and you could see how it gets produced, then it can't be significant. But obviously, one day, we'll be able to, to get data from the 100 billion neurons that are in our brains, and we'll be able to see that, yes, the sentence that I'm saying is the result of some collection of electrical signals in our neurons that are eventually building up to, to make this sentence. And the fact that we can identify that as a, in a sort of mechanistic way, I don't think really detracts from whatever the significance of, of the thing that's being said is. Now, you know, one thing that's come out of a lot of science that I've done is you might say, well, gosh, if we think of brains as being a bit like computers, these other critters must have computers and brains that are somehow fundamentally less capable than ours. This turns out to be almost certainly not the case. Uh, it's, it's, it, once you reach a certain threshold, it's always possible, in principle at least, to program the thing you have to do whatever anything else can do. So in other words, in some sense, it's like saying, in principle, there's a way to you know, train a dog to do all these very elaborate things. 
um, the, 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 the fundamental sort of brain material of the dog should we think be no less computationally capable than the sort of brain material of us humans. Now, there are issues like, for example, the IO system, the input output system of a dog is very different from ours. You know, for example, it's input, you know, it uses its nose to smell things a lot. We are not, you know, primarily, we're primarily vision and sound based uh, uh, critters. And um, in terms of the, the sort of the output, uh, you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't get to make fine objects uh, with kind of typical dog paws and so on. An interesting question, of course, is that most of the things we make, we don't make with our own hands anymore. We make them through a chain of technology that maybe starts with something from our hands, but is, you know, far removed from that. So a question that you can ask is, well, what if we did the same thing for the dogs and cats and, and whatever else? What if we just had, you know, some device that they could take what they can actually directly do? You know, uh, it's like, like uh, you know, people often worry about um, having user interfaces for touch display where you just like push your finger here, push your finger there, rather than the finer control that might exist in other cases. Okay, so you've got the corresponding thing. You put your paw here, you put your paw there. How does it, how does it work? What can it do? And you know uh, the the question of what the dog interface looks like and how that relates to the human user interface, the so-called um, human interface design would become sort of canine interface design or whatever. How that really would work, it's not completely clear. And and what you might be able to get uh, the dog to create with its canine interface, so to speak, not completely clear. Uh, you know, a couple of issues that come up. It's like it might create this very elaborate pattern of things and it might look to us completely random. What would we conclude then? Will we conclude that the dog was just putting random stuff down? Or will we conclude that it had some profound meaning to the dog? We just don't know what that profound meaning is. And if we say, well, it couldn't be have any profound meaning. It's just sort of a random pattern. Well, go look at early cave paintings where they're just kind of a collection of handprints in different places. Are those significant? Are they not significant? We just don't really know. And uh, the, you know, the challenge for, for sort of knowing what's going on inside, uh, you know, how uh, is, is it the case that, but for the fact that there isn't a chain of automation that allows you to build and store different kinds of things, there could perfectly well be a cat civilization. Um, we don't really know. If, and were there to be such a thing, would it be bizarrely and alienly different from anything that we know about? We don't really know. Uh, the, you might say, well, at least these, these animals are in the same environment, basic, you know, natural environment that we humans are in, um, but their experience of it, their senses may be sufficiently different that their experience of it may be bizarrely different. And it may be that the kinds of things, let, let's imagine that, that, that they were able to produce some kind of symbolic language, the kinds of words they might have, the kinds of descriptions they might give of things might be utterly and bizarrely different from ours. I mean, for instance, imagine, you know, we have a lot of words that describe visual scenes for things, but imagine you were primarily sensing things by smell. There's a, probably a whole other lexicon, a whole other sort of dictionary of different possible ways. Oh, that's a 
that's a smell that has, you know, a, 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 which we can't really describe with our words, that has sort of a, a, a round bit on one side and it's pointy on the other side and it's got some kind of flow that looks like this. And we can't really describe it with the words that we have because that's not the sensory experience that we humans have. Same kind of thing for aquatic animals. You can certainly imagine there's all kinds of information about uh, the, the flow of fluids, the flow of water. Oh, you know, we might, as, as people who know about uh, fluid mechanics and physics say, oh, that's a vortex there. That's a, 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 a vortex street. That's a, a certain kind of uh, flow. But, but if you're a dolphin or something which can uh, feel the pressure of water you know, all over your, your skin, you might have um, uh, all kinds of other elaborate descriptions of fluid dynamics that we have no idea about. And that we, in our normal experience, we just like, that just looks like it's water. Um, not, oh, it's water with this particular velocity field that puts this particular pressure on the, one's fin when, it, when one does this or that. So it's, it's hard to extrapolate these things. And uh, the question of, um, the question that was originally asked, um, uh, what kind of animal would I like to be if I wasn't a human? I think that's a very hard thing to answer if in, in, a, in some theory of reincarnation, if one's reborn as a dot, dot, dot. Um, I have to say, I, I, uh, some, at some point I was, I was thinking that there are creatures like uh, uh, the Nautilus, it's a, it's a type of, of uh, cephalopod that um, has, uh, uh, is, is known to have a very peaceful life, or you think it has a very peaceful life. It just goes, it just slowly goes up and down uh, in water every day. And um, uh, somehow these, these things where there's the idea that some particular kind of critter has a, a very peaceful life, then you discover, how does it eat? And then you discover, actually, it has a very, very peaceful life until it sees a, a piece of prey, and then suddenly it turns itself into something else and it, it uh, you know, lashes out and gets that piece of prey and eats it. So I don't really know. I, I don't have a, I don't, um, I think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty okay just uh, doing the human thing. So I, I don't have a great answer to that. Let's see. Oh, there's a question just came in from JR. What technology is necessary for us humans to be able to provide an evolutionary update to any of our sensory organs? Yeah, I think the most immediate one of those is for vision. Um, when our eyes are sensitive to visible light, visible light, light is an electromagnetic wave and it's visible light is an electromagnetic wave of a certain range of frequencies around a trillion cycles per second. And um, the uh, uh, visible light goes from uh, red uh, at uh, low frequencies to blue at high frequencies. But you can go beyond those frequencies. You can go into the infrared or into the ultraviolet, which correspond to lower frequencies of electromagnetic radiation or higher frequencies of electromagnetic radiation. So for example, when an object is hot, it will emit lots of infrared radiation. As it gets hotter and hotter, it will eventually glow and you'll see that as visible light. When you make it even hotter, it will go from red hot to white hot to blue hot as it kind of uh, produces higher and higher frequency electromagnetic radiation. But so if only you could see in the infrared, you would be able to see, oh, that thing is hot even though it isn't yet glowing red hot. It's not hot enough to glow red hot, but you'd be able to see that it's hot. 
And um, so as a sort of a question, how you would do that? Well, there certainly exist uh, cameras that are very much like the standard cameras that we use on our computers and, and everything else today and our phones and so on today. The, the sensors are just a little tiny bit different and they can see into the infrared. In fact, even the sensors that we actually have on our, on our phones and things can see a little bit into the ultraviolet usually. And usually in order not to confuse the human users of phones, they have filters so that you're, they're not sensing the ultraviolet light that you see in a room. So they're only sensing the visible light, which is what we see with our eyes. Um, but they're only showing us the, the, the result of the visible light, but they're actually sensing some things that are into the, uh, the ultraviolet and, and sometimes also, I think, a little bit into the infrared. Um, and they're just being sort of uh, uh, kind of constrained in order to not confuse the human users. But so if you say, let's actually have sensors that can detect things outside of the visible range, um, then the next question is, okay, so how should you show that to us humans? I've wondered about this from time to time. What's the best way if you could annotate our visual field, if you were using augmented reality so that you're projecting uh, sort of additional elements in, in the image, let's say, for example, a typical method has a little tiny projector that is projecting uh, directly onto your retina. So it's kind of, it's, it would be, for example, typically scanning very fast, a very low power laser that would be uh, sort of writing data onto your retina. Or it might be something where you actually have some, something which is forming an image um, that uh, uh, your glasses have sort of optics that let you see at a distance. But the end result, the sort of the, the concept of augmented reality is that you can get to superimpose on your uh, standard visual field additional information. So for example, that additional information, I've always wanted this, might be something that will be a little sort of caption that says, okay, you're, you're, you're in a, a room with a lot of people, you know, let's have a caption that, um, uh, that can point to each person and say what the last time you had an interaction with that person is by using face recognition and looking up data and so on. I have to say, I'm not sure quite why we haven't had more uh, uh, artificial augmented reality um, now that uh, we're all using video conferencing all the time, um, I, I don't see that very often. I suppose, it, I suppose it, it, in a sense, we already have that because you'll see an icon, you know, you'll, you'll see an array of pictures of people and each one will have a name underneath. Um, but in any case, the, the, the sort of the concept of augmented reality is just in your regular kind of looking around at things, you have some annotation of the visual field that tells you additional things about what you're seeing. So what if you also have a camera that is able to see into the infrared and into the ultraviolet, what should it do to annotate your visual scene? Well, clearly if there's a thing that's hot, but you don't know it, it might be a like, don't touch that thing, you know, warning, warning, this thing, th this thing is hot. And I can tell that because I can see it in the infrared. But for example, putting an overlay of color um, of some other, you know, representing the infrared colors of a particular thing, that's a possibility might be pretty confusing to us humans, at least for a time. Um, I think that, uh, uh, but by the way, I mean, we, we have examples of this already uh, pretty commonly used, like, like um, uh, cars that have a head-up display that um, sometimes called, I don't know, you know, for looking for animals in the road. Because animals, are, uh, like mammals, are warm-blooded, they are typically hotter than their environment, 
And so in the infrared, they're very obvious. And so that means if you have a camera in your car that um, is an infrared camera, it can uh, pretty dramatically detect, you know, a deer running across the road or something. Um, and uh, in, in cars, it's not uncommon to have some sort of a head up display that will project onto the windshield, something where you'll typically have, you know, this white outline of this hot uh, animal. And that's, that's an example of sort of seeing in the infrared. But um, sort of what, if one had that on an everyday basis for everything one was looking at, and one's visual scene was always being annotated with information about infrared or ultraviolet pieces, I'm not quite sure what the best way to do that is. Um, and, uh, but that's a place where we could imagine sort of augmenting standard human sensory data. Now, there's a little bit more you can do with that. Uh, when we look at a, a thing like, I don't know, um, oh, some, some piece of chocolate or something, we might just see it as a piece of chocolate that's this sort of brownish color or whatever else. But actually, if you were able to look at it uh, with precisely enough, with, with enough kind of uh, uh, distinction about exactly what, uh, what light is being absorbed and, uh, and, uh, and uh, reflected by the chocolate, you could actually get a lot more information about the chocolate. So as a idea, it's called usually hyperspectral imaging. And um, the, the notion is this, uh, we identify, we, when we look, at, we look at something, we say, oh, that thing is red, that thing is blue, whatever else. But in reality, any object, has a whole distribution of different wavelengths, different frequencies of light that it will absorb and reflect. And uh, our eyes uh, just are sensitive to sort of three buckets of uh, kind of frequency spectrum, red, green, blue. So for us, every color is made up of just a combination of a certain amount of red, a certain amount of green, a certain amount of blue. But in, in reality, every object is generating, is, is reflecting, for example, light that has a whole distribution of different frequencies. So it may be, uh, it may, uh, instead of just being, oh, it's just red, um, it's, it's a whole distribution that has a piece of red, a piece of yellow, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of distribution of, of how much light exists at different frequencies, that there's a, that any, any material has a certain characteristic pattern of what that distribution is. For us, we just say how much red, how much green, how much blue is in it. And we just say it's that color. But in reality, there's much more information. There's, there's the whole information about the whole spectrum of different amounts of, amounts of electromagnetic radiation at different frequencies. And so there are some devices that exist today that do some amount of hyperspectral imaging. Well, at least uh, uh, they, they can work out the spectrum of the light and so, for example, there's one that will tell you, you know, the fat content in your piece of chocolate based on that. Um, and you can do things where you say uh, this, um, uh, this particular uh, piece of fruit is, uh, is ripe, even though you can't necessarily see that invisible light. Um, you can tell from the way that uh, from, from this kind of spectrum, um, you can tell that information. So hyperspectral imaging is another thing that sort of augments the human ability to perceive what's going on. Exactly how you should present that information is not so clear. For example, it might be, oh, 
um, you know, you could annotate what kind of material this object is. You know, you pick up a rock. It's like, well, what kind of rock is this? Well, uh, with with hyperspectral imaging, it, it may be very easy to tell what kind of rock it is. And it's like, uh, and, and you could have something that's sort of a little caption in your augmented reality system that tells you that. But, you know, the question of how you feed enough information into us humans uh, in the right way, it's kind of a, a user interface problem of how do we augment our, uh, even if we, we have the, the, the sensors to get us a lot more information, how do we present that in a way that we'll understand? You know, it's a good question. If we routinely had some sort of overlay of, of different kinds of colors that represented, you know, the whole hyperspectral story of what, what our images were looking like, how quickly would we get used to being able to use that information? And how confusing would it be to us and so on? Not sure I know the answer to that. I mean, the, 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 we don't really yet have experience even with augmented reality. We don't know what will happen um, when there finally is fairly routine augmented reality. What will the world be like? I mean, will we be, you know, will we might leave sort of visual post-it notes for us in different places. If our augmented reality system can recognize, oh, uh, you know, I'm walking back into the same room that I was in before. Oh, in this room, I left myself a, um, uh, you know, a post-it note, a virtual post-it note that said this or that. Or it might, you might walk back into the same room and, you know, it has a bookshelf in it and your uh, augmented reality system might immediately recognize, oh, those books are slightly different than they were uh, two months ago when you last walked into this room. Uh, there are books that have been taken out in this place, that place, that place, a kind of visual diff of, of, what the, um, of what the room looks like now compared to what the room looked like before. And that's another example of kind of augmenting our human senses, because we might say, oh, something looks different about this room, but we'd be very unlikely to be able to give that precise diff information. But that's something we can imagine doing uh, without using any kind of different uh, input than just the visible light image of things, but that's just a, an, an additional piece that we could imagine there. Now, I mean, there are there are many other kinds of um, sensors that we could imagine using. For example, there are ones that uh, directly detect uh, chemicals in in the air. Um, there are ones you know you can get um, particular sensors that will measure you know carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, dust these kinds of things. You can imagine something where there's a pretty broad spectrum, sort of chemical, et cetera, sensor for things that are in the gas around you, so to speak. Um, again, those are things where I don't think we have a tremendously refined sense of what we would do with, well, maybe something more extreme than just having a sensor for total concentration of some particular chemical that we might smell with our noses. But if we had an, a, a something more like, uh, if we had, um, stereoscopic vision, if we had multiple sensors for that, that, um, that smell, we could tell, oh, the smell is coming from this side, it's coming from that side, just as with our eyes, we can tell a bunch of information about where things are coming from, how far away things are, because we're able to, to tell what the difference in the angle that we're seeing something from, from each of our two eyes, and if something is very close up, then that angle, there'll be a big difference in angle. If the thing is very far away, there'll be a small difference in angle. And that's how we can tell how far away something is um, using our eyes. Actually, we have, we use other clues that are based on the, uh, just our experience with things that we see. And sometimes those other clues are more important than the specific stereoscopic vision aspect of, of what's going on. 
but uh, you know, I think this question of, of um, uh, what, are, what are things like when we have a lot more sensory input is an interesting one. I mean, we can imagine something where we have uh, little sensors all over our environment and somehow we're feeding those sensors to ourselves, maybe through some augmented reality interface. And then what is it, what is it like when, when you're not just seeing things with your own eyes, but you're, you're having all this information fed to you, uh, perhaps, um, uh, perhaps uh, in, in other ways than just with vision and so on. I mean, the, the most extreme version of this that people talk about is what if we could just directly feed into our brains this data. So, so normally what's happening is we see something with our eyes, the light falls on the retina at the back of our eyes, the, um, every, every photon of light that falls on our retina, uh, well, at least a, a decent clump of photons together will, well, actually every, every photon um, will tend to uh, cause the cells in our retina the, the, um, the, the, to uh, produce a little electrical signal. And those electrical signals are then fed through our optic nerve to our visual cortex, which rather in rather bad design is at the back of our heads. And in that visual cortex, the electrical signal that comes from that visible that light falling on your retina is turned into something which becomes eventually an experience for us. In fact, in the visual cortex, one of the quite surprising things that was discovered in the 1960s is that the, the, the sort of the map of the visual scene of things are on the left, things are on the right and so on, is quite literally translated into our visual cortex. There actually are layers of cells that are laid out just the same way that our visual scene is laid out. Um, they go to successive layers. And as you go to higher and higher layers, there's sort of more and more uh, correlation, more and more interaction between cells in different parts of the visual scene. And so, for example, in the first level of, of cells, a typical thing that will happen is there will be cells that work out, oh, this is an edge, because we can see there's, uh, there's a bright color here and there's a dark color, sort of one pixel, one retina pixel away or something from that one. And so that's a way of sort of detecting an edge. And so for sort of higher levels of visual processing, all we know is there, oh, there are these edges, there are these blobs here. We don't know anymore sort of what the individual pixels are. And as we go to higher levels of visual processing, presumably we identify whole objects and then we can start to, to think in terms of those objects. I mean, curiously enough, in artificial neural networks, the, um, uh, the very, very much the same methodology is used. So-called convolutional neural networks basically are an array of sort of artificial neurons that are very much like the array of artificial neurons that we have, real neurons that we have in our visual cortex. I mean, there are, there are all kinds of weird things about our visual cortex. For example, our two eyes, um, they, the, 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 the information from our two eyes gets mixed together in the visual cortex, but the, the sort of first level of cells have some cells that come uh, are getting signals from our left eye, some from our right eye, and they kind of interdigitate. Um, they make a kind of a, a pattern of left eye, right eye, some cells for the left eye, some cells for the right eye. They kind of make a thing that looks a bit like zebra stripes, um, where some cells are getting information from the left eye, some from the right eye. And as the information from the two eyes is sort of mixed together, that's where we start to get stereoscopic vision and we start to get kind of depth information and things like this. But there's sort of a question, if we were going to feed new data directly into our brains, where would we put it? Because for the thing we have for our eyes, we have a very definite setup for 
in our visual cortex for how the data from our eyes gets turned into things that, are, uh, that we deal with in our brains. So if we say, okay, let's add a whole nother vision system, where would we, what would be the end point of that vision system? Where would it go in the brain? You know, we could overlay it on our usual vision system, but we might as well do that externally. We might as well just show different things to our eyes. Now, another question is, could we learn a, um, uh, a different, uh, if, if we fed data into some other part of our brain, could we learn some new form of sensory input? My guess is the answer is probably yes. Whether we could do it at all ages, I'm not so sure. Like for example, in the case of vision, there's a, 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 a curious um, uh, thing called amblyopia, which is sometime, something kids sometimes get, where basically what happens is if one of your eyes has, doesn't have very good vision, let's say you have very, you're very nearsighted, you have lots of astigmatism in one eye or something, but the other eye is just fine. Then if that happens when you're, when you're a young kid, then your brain will just say, look, I'm getting great visual input from the good eye and I'm just gonna ignore the bad eye. And so what ends up happening is that um, the visual cortex just, pay, just makes connections for the good eye and doesn't make the connections for the bad eye. And so, so long as you, you catch that before you're, I don't know, six, 10, something like that years old, it's pretty easy. You just you know, cover the, um, uh, you, know, you correct the actual vision defect of the bad eye, you cover the one that, um, uh, that was good for some number of hours per day or whatever, and the brain will somehow start to be able to make the connections and see through the bad eye as well. And the fact that that's possible, at least at young ages, the fact that it's possible to learn to see, so to speak, um, is, is perhaps an interesting sign of the fact that it will be possible to, to introduce other kinds of sensory input and to learn it. Now, you know, it could be you'd have to learn it when you were a kid, I don't know. I don't know how sort of uh, how, how teachable uh, older brains like mine are. Um, I like to think that it's still possible to learn lots of kinds of things, but whether it's possible to learn things at the level of uh, the sort of very low levels of, um, of, of, uh, uh, of, of neural processing, I'm not so sure. I mean, it's kind of a little bit like the question of if you're learning certain kinds of manual skills, that's easier to do that when you're a kid or, or than, than later. Although in many of these kinds of things like learning languages, um, sort of additional knowledge about how to teach and how to give feedback about what you learnt, how to tell whether you're speaking with a perfect British, American, whatever accent um, is, uh, uh, is something that has gradually been, been discovered and it makes it possible for sort of even people who weren't kind of doing this when they were, when they were kids to be able to, to achieve good results. But so that's sort of a, a question of if, if we had very different kinds of sensory input, um, how would we feed it? If we're feeding it directly into our brains, if we were able to have sort of a, 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 a fake optic nerve, if we were able to have something which was a, a piece of electronics that directly sends electrical signals to some part of our brain, and people are experimenting with lots of kinds of things to do this, um, what, kind of, uh, uh, what kind of thing could we learn from that? Obviously, the, the first places this is, well, there are a bunch of places this is happening, but, but uh, 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 people where, where, for example, they have spinal cord injuries and so on, and where, where it's interesting to try and just do sort of direct electrical connections to nerves, that's a place where these kinds of things are starting. And there are also attempts to make kind of artificial retinas um, where, where you're actually 
taking sort of electronic data and feeding it to the optic nerve um, rather than having uh, that happen sort of all biologically. But uh, these are interesting questions. I'm not sure we know. Uh, there's a lot of things we don't know about the answers to these questions. Um, I would say that uh, as we start to get these different forms of sensory input, um, if that is a possibility for, uh, for, for us humans, getting these different forms of sensory input will give us very different views of the world. And that means that, for example, our way of describing the world, we were talking about this in the context of kind of other critters, our way of describing the world might change completely. So it might be that uh, if you were to um, have a conversation with a human X number of years from now, who was all decked out in all kinds of uh, uh, extra sensory um, kind of sensory apparatus, so to speak, that they might be discussing the, uh, the, 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 their experience of the world and they might be talking about things which have words which are completely alien to us now and where even the description of what this word means will be very difficult to give because it relates to sensory experiences that we just don't have. So that's a, uh, uh, that's a kind of a view of the, uh, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a somewhat sobering view of the future, but I think also we have to realize as we look back, there are plenty of experiences. If we go back, let's say 500 years, there are plenty of experiences that technology has allowed us to have, or in some cases, science has allowed us to have that would be quite hard to explain um, from 500 years ago, just because that's not kind of the experience of the world that existed at that time. Oh gosh, there are all kinds of questions here. Oh, so many interesting things. Um, there's a question here, are there any implication of standardizing the identification of chemical signatures of odors? That's an interesting question. Okay, how do we smell? Well, that's not, what do we smell like to other critters? That's what do we, when we smell things, how does that work? It's fairly similar to how we taste things. In both cases, they're very chemical processes. Like our tongue has taste buds, which are these complicated, uh, complicated cells that little pieces of food get stuck in, and they essentially are having chemical reactions in there. That and the it's it's like electrochemistry. It's like it's like a little tiny battery-like thing where the chemical reaction will cause the um, uh, the chemical reaction will cause an electrical signal to be produced that goes to nerve cells in our tongue or in our nose, um, and those electrical signals correspond to uh, are, are what are our sense of taste or our sense of smell. Now, uh, there's a question, how many different kinds of chemical sensors are there? We've got an example in a different domain when we are dealing with light and vision, we know that there are three kinds of color sensors that detect the color of things, red, green, and blue sensors. There's an additional kind of sensor that is overall light level. So those are the, the three kinds of cone cells are the three uh, color detecting cells and um, the uh, rod cells are the black and white somewhat more uh, able to sense even lower light levels than, the, than the, the cone cells, for example. They're the kind of overall black and white uh, light level. That the fact that the cone cells are different from the, uh, the, the rod cells are different from the cone cells, that's why in low light levels, you can, you can still see images of things, but they're kind of black and white. You don't see color. That's because those images are being detected by the rod cells in your retina. The cone cells don't have enough light, to, don't have enough intensity of light to be active. But um, in any case, 
you might wonder whether uh, somehow perhaps smell and taste work a bit like vision. Because in vision, we've just got basically these three kinds of cells that detect these three sort of components of color of light. So how does that work for taste and smell? It's not really known, but most likely there are hundreds of different kinds of uh, things that are being detected. So it's not the same kind of thing as, oh, you can just have red, green, blue pixels on your computer screen. And from that you can, by having different intensities of red, green, blue, as far as our eyes are concerned, it can be any color we can describe. Um, for, for smell and taste, it seems to be much more diverse. It seems that we'd have to get sort of several hundred dimensional um, uh, uh, kind of range of possibilities to be able to imitate sort of all the tastes and smells that we, we detect. And that's some, um, uh, but you know, there's a question of, of can, one, uh, can one sort of parameterize that? People have wondered whether the shapes of molecules might have something to do with the, with the way that they smell. Actually, more so than the shapes of the molecules, kind of the way that the molecules vibrate around, that those, that those vibrations and molecules might be things that are sort of the critical piece of what causes molecules when we smell them, so to speak, to smell in a particular way. Uh, a place where this is much uh, discussed is in the perfume industry, where there's, there's great interest in figuring out, can you kind of just sort of tune the smell of things in an arbitrary way? One of the things that tends to be the case is that any given scent tends to have a very large number of different kinds of molecules in it. It tends to not just be, oh, it's one kind of molecule. It tends to be the things that are sort of sculpted to be the sense we want to have are things that are combinations of lots of kinds of molecules. Probably the same thing is true in food, that um, sort of the, 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 the pure case of let's just eat you know, some pure substance that's, that's unlikely to be something that will be satisfying. It's like, let's eat this thing that has this whole range of different kinds of uh, molecules that react in different ways with our different taste buds and so on, that seems to be the more satisfying possibility. Um, but so, so the answer is, I, I think um, there's, there's, there's much more to figure out about um, uh, kind of the, 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 um, uh, the, the parameterization of, of sort of uh, tastes and smells and so on. A, a similar kind of area is the parameterization of texture. In, in, in visual texture or tactile texture when we feel things. Um, to what extent can one sort of say, oh, that's a rough surface. That's a furry surface. That's a smooth surface. We've got a whole bunch of different ways that we describe surfaces. And, and in fact, if you, if you consider our fingertips, for instance, as we sort of move our fingers a, a, across things, we're, we're detecting certain aspects of those surfaces and there's a certain amount that's been discovered even in quite recent years about sort of the way that you can think about different kinds of, uh, the, the, just a, a limited number of attributes that can characterize the roughness of a surface. That's about to be something that people uh, may notice a lot because there are displays that have electrical characteristics that where the, the um, electrical characteristics of the display can kind of fake out what our fingers feel. This was a little bit more popular actually a few years ago. I think it's become less popular recently, but there were a lot of experiments done on displays where you could actually, you know, it, it really is just this flat piece of glass, um, but it has electrical properties that cause it so that when you 
rub your fingers on it, it feels like it's furry, for example, or it feels like something else. Now, quite what it's necessarily doing to your fingers, I'm not sure, because that's always an issue of, of when you kind of, uh, you know, when you're using kind of electrical mechanisms to sort of uh, fake out um, human sensory systems, I, maybe it isn't good for them, it's not clear. Um, I have to say that uh, uh, a personal quirk of mine that I will admit to, which is um, uh, still a little bit unclear uh, what its real story is, and I need to do more experiments on it. But I noticed years ago that when there started to be uh, uh, rare earth magnets, uh, very strong magnets, um, that um, uh, when those started to be fairly common, I would get them, and I would, they would be in things I was using, that uh, when I would touch them, my fingers would start tingling, or at least that's what I believed. Um, and it is certainly possible that electrochemically things can happen, particularly if the magnets are moving relative to your finger, you can induce currents in your fingers and so on. And uh, it's not completely crazy to think that that could stimulate uh, sensations in nerves there. I have to say my, my, my children at one point did some, some sort of uh, experiments on me and, and claimed that my, my claim about this was completely false. But, but um, uh, you know, this is one of these things where you actually have to do the experiment carefully to know what's going on. And, and I haven't done this experiment on myself, but it's sort of a, a, a question of uh, to what extent uh, can one be sensitive to, for example, uh, changing magnetic fields and, and things like this, and to what extent uh, the, the, the actual uh, direct tactile sensation of these things with these uh, electrical effects um, can make sort of people... Uh, uh, sort of perceive different textures and so on. But this question about textures and, and whether there are a limited number of attributes of textures that are sufficient, just like there are a limited number of attributes of colors, how much red, how much green, how much blue, that sort of gives us the full spectrum of colors that we normally perceive. I mean, I do have to say in the, in the, in the world of colors, there's a curious footnote uh, that relates to kind of how different organisms perceive things. The um, uh, some, we, we have these, these cells in our retina that are sensitive, for example, to blue light. Um, and uh, those cells, what's actually in them is a protein, uh, I guess it's rhodopsin, um, that is uh, the, um, uh, a, a protein that has a particular arrangement of atoms and so on, that has a particular sensitivity to blue light. Well, different humans are different. And so different humans will have slightly different atoms in that, uh, uh, in that protein. And that means that they'll be different, to, they'll be potentially sensitive to slightly different frequencies of blue light. And they'll be able, what counts for them as kind of the most intense blue will be a little bit different from what counts as the most intense blue for somebody else. Okay, so here's the weird footnote. So the, the protein, that is responsible for, for sensing different colors on the retina is produced by the X chromosome. Um, and uh, so you know, what's happening is the X chromosome contains genetic information in its DNA. Um, so we, we have 23 chromosomes and, and they, the, well, times two. And um, we have um, uh, the, um, we, we've got, um, uh, these chromosomes are, consist of, of um, oh, hundreds of millions of, um, of, of base pairs of DNA that provide 
the, the program, the specification for how to make proteins that are going to be used in different parts of our body. So there's a, there's a specification that happens to be on the X chromosome for making the, um, the protein that's used for sensing light, uh, sensing color on our retinas. Okay, so this is, uh, it's on the X chromosome. So the next fact is that all female uh, organisms have two X chromosomes. Males have an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. Females have two X chromosomes, one from one parent, one from the other parent. So that means that in principle, a female of the species, so to speak, can have uh, two different versions of the protein that um, uh, uh, is sensitive to, uh, is, is responsible for sensing color. So that means that in principle, uh, women can have uh, two different populations of, of color sensitive cells on the retinas. And actually this, this really happens. And you can even uh, detect those different populations and you'll find that they're sort of, uh, they're, they're kind of, they have different sort of, they're, they're, they look a little bit like zebra stripes, actually strangely through processes very similar to the ones that happen in the visual cortex so the way that the, that the cells from left and right eyes get mixed together. But you'll get these different kind of um, uh, uh, fingers of different um, of, of cells that are mostly sensitive to one particular kind of blue versus mostly sensitive to a slightly different kind of blue. So that means that in principle, if you happen to be one of those lucky females who got a slightly different version of these color sensitive cells from their uh, mother versus from their father, then they'll be able, to, they'll, they'll have parts of their retina that have have um, uh, sensitivity to one version of blue versus another version of blue. So the, the result of that is that you can kind of, uh, that, that there can be a higher sensitivity to variations in color that exist for somebody with a retina that's set up that way than for us boring males, for example, who have uh, only one version of the X chromosome and so have necessarily just one, one version of those color sensitive cells. So that's an example of a, a rather subtle effect that um, is sort of a, a different sensory perception that can exist, uh, at least in some people. Um, let's see. Oh boy, so many interesting questions here. Um, it's a question from William. Is it the case that uh, left-handed glucose and right-handed glucose taste the same? Uh, they don't taste the same to everybody. Um, so, so what happens is the molecule that makes some um, uh, sugar, uh, it's, it's often called dextrose. Dexter in Latin means right. And, and the reason is that the arrangement of atoms in the molecule, it, it's kind of like, it's like if you have your right hand, your thumb is pointing out that way and your fingers curl around this way. If you have your left hand, the, it, it sort of curls around the opposite way around. And if you think about uh, some of the atoms in that molecule, being sort of curling around versus another atom sort of sticking out like where your thumb is. Um, though there are two different versions of uh, many molecules. Many molecules that are used in living systems have two different versions, a left-handed version and a right-handed version. Well, in all actual living systems, it's all right-handed molecules. The left-handed molecules aren't there in, in actual living systems. But when you make those same chemicals in a lab, you will often get the same amount of the right-handed version as the left-handed version. Presumably, back in the day, you know, sometime uh, 
four billion years ago, three and a half billion years ago, whenever it was that life first arose on our planet, um, presumably there were both left and right handed uh, molecules that existed at that time. And somehow the righties won out over the lefties. And so the whole sort of history of life on Earth is right hand molecules. There's kind of a theory that uh, in, in physics, most things are kind of uh, neutral between the sort of left and right handed variants. There is one uh, exception that happens in radioactive beta decay. And it is just conceivable that things to do with radioactive beta decay um, in the early Earth would have tipped the scale a bit towards the right-handed molecules and away from the left-handed molecules. So it wasn't just the right and left-handed organisms, so to speak, duking it out and the right-handed molecules winning uh, through a historical accident sometime in the Precambrian period. It might have been more to do with the actual physics of the construction of molecules. But in any case, there's a question of if you take left-handed sugar and you put it on your tongue, what does it taste like? And I believe it's the case that to some people it tastes bitter and to some people it tastes sweet. Um, that, that's, that's my impression at least. And I'm, I'm trying to remember because I had some of this, oh boy, you're asking me to remember things from a very long time ago. I'm, I'm pretty sure that it tastes bitter to me, um, but I might, be, uh, I might be misremembering that. Um, that's something I'm, that must be from 50 years ago that I, that I, that I tried that experiment. Oh, there's a question from Gregory here about, um, you know, what are the red, green, blue for, for smell and taste? We, we don't really know. People often identify, people, people draw these diagrams about, you know, uh, bitter taste versus this taste versus that taste. But I don't think it's really very clear um, what, what, what those dimensions should, should be. Um, there's a question from William here. Are the neurons in the brain, uh, do they form, he's saying a spatial manifold? Uh, are, they, are the connections mostly local or non-local? So, so it could be the case, uh, for, for example, in our retinas, there are nerve cells and they, those are very locally connected. Like a pixel at one position on our retina has a connection to a pixel, a neighboring pixel. And similarly, in, the, in, the, in V1, the, the first layer of, of processing and the visual cortex, the same thing is true, that there's a, there's a kind of a, an array of neurons there, and the neurons have mostly pretty local connections. That means, for example, when you're trying to process a visual image, at the first level of visual processing, you're doing things like detecting edges, where you're saying, is that neighboring pixel very different in color from, from me or not? As you get to, to bigger scales, as you, as you get to try and figure out more things about images, you have to have information that, that crosses over from one part of the image to a completely different part of the image. And so what tends to happen is as you go to sort of higher layers in, in the cortex, as you go to higher layers in the processing system, the connections seem to get less and less local. And in general, in the brain, the connections are extremely non-local. I mean, it, 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 a particular nerve cell might have a thousand or ten thousand connections. It has these long, spindly connections that connect to all kinds of other nerve cells, uh, quite far away in the brain. Um, I don't know, uh, like how many centimeters, for example, the maximum uh, sort of distance that a nerve cell goes is. But it, it's 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 certainly millimeters. Maybe may even be longer than that. Um, one thing that's always been difficult when people try and figure out what is the wiring diagram for the brain. It's pretty difficult to figure that out. 
because even if you freeze a brain, you cut it in sections and so on, it's, it's full of all of these different little, little things that sort of um, uh, uh, are, are connecting one thing to another, these little sort of wires that are there and sort of arranging all the layers and figuring out what wire connects to what wire. That's a complicated thing. It's something that's now becoming much easier through machine learning kinds of methods and so on. There, there, there has been a, um, a, a nice kind of citizen science project of people, people doing some of these connections by hand and so on. Um, but it's, it's a challenging thing. And when you ask questions like, oh, how many nerve cells is the typical nerve cell in the brain connected to, or what's the architecture? Those have been surprisingly hard to answer. I mean, one of the things that's a, a weird feature of biology a very common thing to do when you're dealing with uh, a, a large arrangement of biological cells is you stain the cells. And the, 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 the thing that happens is there's a, a method, it's called Golgi staining, for example, which is this kind of purple uh, stain. And if you, if you use this purple stain for some bizarre reason, I'm not sure is understood even now, it lights up maybe one in a thousand cells. And so if you're trying to understand what, you know, what this tissue what's going on in this tissue and you Golgi stain it, then one in a thousand cells will turn purple, but then you can kind of see those cells. Uh, you know, if the other cells are sort of slightly transparent, you kind of can see the outline of those cells. You don't just have a jumbled mess where all the cells are connected together, but there are methods like that that have been used, but it's a quite challenging thing to sort of pick apart exactly how things are connected. I mean, the, the one example of the nematode, little, little tiny worm-like creature um, that has uh, a few hundred nerve cells out of, a, out of maybe uh, 1,700 cells altogether, I think. Um, that one has been completely decoded, and ev every nematode has its, um, uh, has its nerve cells arranged in the same way. Um, and um, uh, in that case, it's known how everything is connected to everything. But in, us, in our human brains, the connections are probably not, uh, definitely not, absolutely determined that they're, they're, they're created as the nerve cells grow and they, they grow protuberances out and, and whether the, whether those, uh, whether there's actual, uh, whether the actual operation of the brain can affect the physical arrangement of these protuberances as opposed to just their electrical connections is not completely known. All right, we are running out of time here. Um, the, uh, there's a question here about what happens to people with diabetes for the taste test. It doesn't really, diabetes has, has nothing really to do with uh, the, the, um, uh, the sensing of, of, um, uh, uh, of well, okay. The, the uh, diabetes is a, is a uh, disease associated with the production of insulin uh, by the pancreas, which is uh, uh, an, um, an enzyme, a, it's a protein, a rather complicated protein actually, um, that is responsible for uh, metabolizing glucose, for using the glucose that's in your blood. Um, and so there's, there's, there's no direct connection between um, uh, the, um, uh, the, the kind of um, your, well, in terms of the actual operation of insulin and so on, there's no direct connection between your perception of, of taste of sugar or something and, and um, uh, and whether your pancreas is producing insulin or not. Um, however, having said that, I, I have the impression um, that people who are used to having to sense their blood glucose level, which most people are not particularly 
aware of their blood glucose level because most people, if you don't eat for a while, um, at least if you're like me, eventually you get to the point where you're kind of starting to feel really spacey and so on. That's typically because your blood glucose level is going down. You have to eat something to bring it back up again. Um, if, if you have uh, uh, diabetes, particularly type one diabetes, where you're not making your own insulin, um, you can have much bigger variations in blood glucose level and people get to the point where they have, I think some, some uh, sort of brain level sensing of that uh, level independent of kind of the, the small effects that, that non-diabetic people tend to have. Now it's also the case in the, we were talking about sort of augmented sensors for, for humans. One that's becoming pretty common is continuous glucose monitoring for, for diabetes. And so what's happening there is the normal uh, level of glucose in the blood is kind of roughly a hundred in some units. The, the units for, for, for um, blood glucose are completely different in the US and in Europe. So it's rather confusing, but at least in the US scale, a hundred is kind of typical. And if you don't eat for a long time and it starts going down, I don't know, I don't know how long it goes, maybe nineties or something. And if you eat, depending on what you eat, you will get this kind of, um, uh, the blood glucose level will go up, maybe it'll go up to 130, 150, maybe higher than that. Certain kinds of foods will make it kind of give you a, 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 a kind of a pack, a bit, a sort of a sugar punch, and the thing will go up really quite high. And then as your pancreas produces insulin, that will, uh, will start to be, uh, will be metabolized away and, and that, um, that glucose high will disappear. And, and different kinds of foods have different profiles of how, how quickly the, the, the sort of the glucose level peaks and how high it goes. And in different people, even the same food can give very different profiles. I think even depending on whether you've taken exercise recently or other kinds of effects or even time of day and so on, you can ha have a different sort of profile of what, how much blood glucose you get uh, for a, at a given time for a given food. But one of the things that's, that's happened over the last probably decade or so is increasingly good technology for continuous glucose measurement, which means you put a little thing on your, you attach a little thing to yourself and it has a little microscopic needle that, uh, that sort of pokes itself into probably, not, not actually into your blood, but into, into the kind of interstitial area um, under your skin. And um, that, uh, and, and in that, and that, that little tiny needle is sensing the amount of glucose and effectively the amount of glucose in your blood. And so you're able to get kind of continuous measurement of the amount of glucose that, that you have in your blood, which is a sort of a, an, an extended sensory thing because most humans are at best only coarsely sensitive to their blood glucose level. But with a continuous glucose monitor, you're able to see the precise variation of, of glucose level as you eat different kinds of foods. And um, I'm actually kind of curious, and I really need to do this at some point because I'm really curious because I like collecting data on myself about all kinds of things. It's like, what kinds of foods give me the biggest, uh, you know, glucose spike most of the time and so on. Um, and this is, uh, but, but that's an example of, um, uh, of something where um, it's uh, now, now uh, I, it's a really good question that I don't, well, yes. If you were able to get left-handed sugar into your bloodstream, I am pretty sure that a continuous glucose monitor would um, detect, uh, um, would say 
would count the left-handed sugar along with the right-handed sugar in the total amount of sugar in your bloodstream. But what left-handed sugar would do in your blood, I'm, I'm really not sure. I mean, the way I think continuous glucose monitors work is um, they're, they're essentially uh, the, the electrical conductivity of this interstitial fluid is different depending, no, it's, it's not quite that. It's, it's an electrochemical reaction where, where the amount of glucose is causing more or less chemical reaction to happen um, in, uh, um, yeah, I think what happens is the little tiny micro needle, little catheter um, uh, is kind of sucking fluid up into a device and inside the device, there are chemicals which will react more or less with um, uh, depending on how much glucose there is in the system. There has been a long time hope that it will be possible to have non-invasive glucose monitoring, where you don't have to poke any needles into anything, um, but where you can simply look at the uh, uh, kind of the, the light, the properties of, of the light that's, um, uh, that's being um, absorbed and, and reflected from your blood. So for example, if you have a, a fitness watch kind of thing, you'll see underneath it, it has these green, usually green flashing, sometimes a little bit yellow flashing um, uh, LEDs. And what those are doing is they are, the, the light from those is, is going, it, it, it goes slightly into your skin and depending on what, um, uh, and, and your, you, that, that light is being reflected by your blood and depending on um, how much oxygen is in your blood, um, that there will be different amounts of light reflected. So it's, it's like, you know, blood is, is bluer when it has less oxygen and redder when it has more oxygen roughly. And so what's happening is that is measuring the amount of, of oxygen in your blood and every time your heart beats, there will be a pulse of oxygenated blood that goes out through all of your, all of your arteries and capillaries and so on. And so what's happening is the fitness watch is detecting that sort of spike of oxygenated blood coming through. And it's figuring out how often does oxygenated blood come through and it's measuring roughly, oh, that's happening 60 times a minute or whatever, whatever else it is. When you have a pulse oximeter, um, which is measuring your oxygen saturation, uh, SpO2 level, um, that's, uh, uh, that's a more sensitive version of the same technology um, where you're basically measuring the amount of, for a particular kind of light, you're measuring uh, the amount that comes back at a particular frequency. Um, and uh, uh, that, um, uh, that gives you um, uh, information about the amount of oxygen in your blood and it might be you know 98% saturated or or you know if you're if you're not breathing very well 95% or or 90% or whatever saturated and that's that's coming back that's detected by looking at these light levels from these particular frequencies of light reflected from from your blood well so one of the possibilities is that when there is more or less glucose so the thing i just mentioned is about oxygen in your blood when there's more or less glucose in your blood, you might have a similar effect. The effect is more subtle. And um, because the regular kind of just how much light is reflected at a certain frequency, I don't think that varies with glucose level. But what does vary is a thing called, um, it's a thing called Raman spectroscopy. What happens is when you have a, a frequency of light that's causing molecules to kind of wiggle around and that those, those, those wigglings around are different depending on which molecule is doing the wiggling. 
So glucose will have a characteristic way of kind of wiggling around. And so when you, when you shine light of a particular frequency on a glucose molecule, it will produce a characteristic collection of, um, it, it will, well, it's a little bit more subtle than this, actually. The, the, um, uh, uh, basically, the, the way that it, that it interacts with that light will depend on it being a glucose molecule rather than a hemoglobin molecule, rather than some other kind of molecule. And so by looking at the detailed spectrum of the sort of wigglings around of that molecule, you can tell what is it? Is it glucose? Is it something else? And one day it may be possible to use Raman spectroscopy to detect the levels of hundreds of different things in your blood. So it may be the case that that sort of fitness watch of the future will actually, rather than just giving you your heart rate, will give you um, uh, a trace of, you know, the total amount of glucose and this and that and the other in your blood. And so, you know, it's in the, in the kind of, uh, see what, it, what happens when you eat something. It'll probably be the case at some point in the future, you eat something and you'll be able to see this whole trace of different kinds of things, different levels of different kinds of things in your blood, building up, falling off, depending on what you eat, which will uh, uh, be an interesting feedback mechanism. All right, I think I have to um, wrap up here for, for the day. Um, a lot of really great questions here, which I hope I'll be able to start off addressing next time. But um, thanks for joining me and uh, see you another time. Bye for now. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.